головой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Decolonization and modernization were integral to the Soviet system's promises to its ethnic minorities in Central Asia. How was this accomplished in one of the most underdeveloped regions of the Union, the Socialist Republic of Tajikistan? My guest, Artemy Kalinovsky, explores this question in his new book, The Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and the Decolonization of Soviet Tajikistan, by examining Soviet forms of development, the creation of a Tajik intelligentsia, and the role it played in modernizing their republic, and serving as representatives of Soviet modernization to the Third World. So, how did Tajiks experience Soviet modernity? Artemy Kalinovsky gives us some insight. Artemy Kalinovsky is a senior lecturer in East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam, where he specializes in the history of modern Russia, Central Asia, and the Cold War. He's the author of A Long Goodbye, The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, published by Harvard University Press in 2011. His new book is The Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Artemy Kalinovsky. In, in your new book, um, Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan, you, have a, you start with a really interesting story about how you came about writing this particular book, because you originally started out, started to write something else on the formation of the Tajik uh, intelligentsia. And so I, I thought we'd start by just having you talk about the genesis of this book, and in particular, your, uh, your meeting with uh, a certain Nizamuddin, and, and how this, your conversation with him led to this particular study. Right. So last time that... Um that, that we spoke, the last time you interviewed me after my first book, you asked me what I was going to do, and I had this vague idea that I was going to kind of follow up with, with um, some of the questions I had from my first book on, um, you know, the role of Central Asians in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, um, and that I'd go to Central Asia. At the time, I wasn't even sure that it was only going to be Tajikistan, but, um, and, and interview some of these veterans, uh, but also to try to understand, you know, how politically the region functioned within uh, the Soviet Union and, and why a lot of the kind of, you know, how do we explain the fact that um, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be any real political mobilization against the war or caused, caused by the war, and more generally that it seemed to be one of the more stable pro-Soviet places in the former uh, Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, I had those questions on the one hand. On the other hand, because my background was kind of in history of international relations and the Cold War, 
more so than Soviet history, actually. Um, I'd been reading quite a lot about the history of development and modernization, uh, which had become a kind of a big subfield in, in, in U.S. foreign policy, history of U.S. foreign policies, you know, starting from kind of the mid to late 90s and then also in, in um, parts of imperial history. Um, anyway, so then I went out there in uh, June 2011. Uh, you know, I did what uh, kind of every historian wants to make sure that there are things that there that they can study, i.e. that they can get access to archives. And I didn't know anybody who worked in Tajik archives, so I kind of went blindly. Um, and somebody suggested, look, you know, the Communist Party archives are still controlled by the Communist Party. So if you want access to the archives, you go to the party headquarters, um, which I did, and the headquarters were kind of empty. Um, there was kind of, they were occupying the second floor, I think, of what used to be the city party headquarters. Um, and, uh, and there was this very nice woman, it turned out to be the only really full-time staff member, I think, uh, at the headquarters. And she was, you know, really supportive and she said, yeah, I think it'll work. But then, it, of course, in reality, there were, you know, some people thought I should get access, some people thought I shouldn't. But I just keep coming back there every few days and hanging out. And, um, and you know, the, one of the nice things about this was that people would come in. So, you know, um, people who were still members came in to pay dues. People who were kind of in one of the regional party cells would come in really just to catch up sometimes, I think. And one day there was this, this older gentleman there and she said... Uh, it seemed like he'd been in her office for a while and she'd already had enough of me. She said, well, why don't you go interview him to me? And so we go, we go to the next office and we have this long interview and um, talking about different things. Um, it was actually him and another, another gentleman, you know, and we talked on other things about what was happening during the war in Afghanistan. But um, what, what struck me was that he had actually joined the party after 1991. And he explained it partially as this, you know, this is kind of uh, something I've always wanted to do. It's a way to honor my uh, father, who was a communist, and, and he had a lot of kind of stories about his family, as I said. And then uh, and they said, okay, but why, I mean, why after 1991, right? Because this is not a situation like you have in some post-Soviet countries where you could say, okay, the Communist Party may not be in charge, but it's still a big party. There's still kind of potential economic or networking benefits associated with it. I mean, that was not the case in Tajikistan. They were around, but there were really no, you know, no, no real benefits to joining. And he, and, and he said, you know, um, uh, our young people go to America today and they say, look, you know, they have communism there. And I say, yes, but at what cost? And I thought that was such a weird thing to say, right? I mean, what America and communism, um, you know, what planet are you living on? But, but, uh, but what, he, what he meant was, um, you know, I, I, I ended up using the word development. He was talking about, okay, you have roads and you have electricity everywhere and you have new cars and, and nice buildings and all this stuff. Um, and presumably at what cost, he meant things like, you know, inequality and, and, and so forth. And by the way, since then, I've come across that, uh, that conflation of the West and communism or American communism uh, many times. In fact, just this morning I was re reading an interview uh, with a uh, with an economist who was talking actually about his father who had been a, a veteran of the war and, and, a com and a party member and he said, you know, so what he was working on was building communism. That's the same thing that they're now doing in the West. Right? And again, he, he didn't mean, you know, he didn't mean Bernie Sanders, he didn't mean the DSA, you know, they meant really uh, this, this, other, this other thing. Um, and that led me to kind of start thinking about things uh, in, a, in a different way. And I thought, okay, so maybe actually, you know, the stuff that I've been reading on development history um, 
is 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 can help me inform my uh, can help inform my questions that I bring to looking at what was going on in Central Asia in the post-war period. No, it's it's interesting that essentially it it seems to me that he com- he conflated the idea or the promise of communism with modernization, right? With kind of a certain level of modern living, a certain level of plentitude. Um, not necessarily, as you say, in terms of like though social inequality and economic inequality certainly was an issue since with this question of at what cost. But at the same time, it's it's really interesting. So, what is talk about the, this issue of development in the Soviet context and and how does it compare with you know similar practices in the West? Because most of the literature, as you note, about the issue of development in the post-war period. Uh, around the third world, for example, comes from a mostly Western a capitalist understanding. So how about in the Soviet context? Well, so the thing is, of course, okay, I said, you know, I'm interested in development, but then the Soviets don't really talk about development in the same way. But then you kind of realize that actually this is so central. The reason they don't talk about it is it's so central to their project, right? This is all about history moving in a certain direction. Um, and, uh, and, and the job of the party is to push it along that direction, right? Um, and what does it look like in concrete terms? Well, uh, you know, we all know Lenin's famous, uh, dictum about communism is Soviet power plus electrification. Um, we know all of these projects, you know, thanks to people approaching from, approaching these questions from economic history, from social history, from cultural history. Um, you know the, these uh, urban projects and, uh, uh, and and these dam projects and so forth. That, that this was all part of building this socialist and then communist society. Yeah. Um, but then, on the other hand, of course, in the same period that I'm looking at, the Soviet Union gets quite involved in doing these things abroad, um, and particularly. Uh, you know, in places its heavier commitments are in places like Afghanistan. Um, but uh, also in places like India, and David Ehrman just had a really fascinating book um, uh, looking at Soviet and American uh, commitments in, in India. Um, and, and of course, much further afield. I mean, eventually they'd be working, uh, the Soviets would be working everywhere from kind of, uh, you know, uh, parts of East Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, uh, even Latin America. Um, and so if you... If you take aside this idea that you know we're going to have communism at the end of it, you realize actually there's a lot of a lot of familiar uh, kind of presumptions, right, in this idea of development, right? That um, you know industrial modernity is superior to a kind of um, agricultural or agriculturally oriented society and economy. That to have people uh, to, to build this industrial modernity, you need people who are very forward looking, who have kind of you know, uh, faith in technology and science uh, rather than tradition and religion, um, that, uh, you know, you're going to need technical experts, right? And, and uh, you're going to have to train those people. So you need a widespread system of, you know, education, and literacy, and all of these things. Um, and even, I would say, in the 1950s they, in, and 60s, Soviet and, and Western development um, look particularly like each other because both of them are... Uh, you know, kind of working from versions of uh, what was known amongst development economists at the time in the West as kind of the big push, right? So this idea that uh, somebody has to step in and create the initial supplies of energy and infrastructure 
you know, along which other, um, you know, industrial producers uh, or, or uh, large-scale farming can kind of link up, right? And so, and so that's why you have, you know, the Americans building large dams, the Soviets building large dams, the Americans building roads, the Soviets building large roads, um, and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that these are exactly the same. And I think um, the, the comparison that I kind of pause on a bit is really comparing what historians of American um, uh, foreign development uh, consider a kind of starting point, which is the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and then uh, this uh, particular case in, in Tajikistan um, of the of the Nurek Dam, right, which is which is part of a larger cascade of dams which is supposed to power all this other uh, industrialization and, and uh, expansion of agriculture and so forth. Um, and you know, there you see the way that, of course, these visions are also going to be constrained or even reshaped by certain political realities. And, and uh, some of the, the work on the TVA, you know, shows the way that, okay, there's this, this vision of democratic uplift. And yet what actually happens on the ground is, you know, you form political alliances to get this thing through. Uh, those political alliances in the context of, you know, Jim Crow America mean basically that African-Americans are largely shut out of the benefits of the TVA. Even poorer white farmers, to an extent, don't fully benefit from the TVA, but there are other interests who do. And if we look at the Soviet case now, of course, there's plenty of inequality in the Soviet Union. There's also discrimination. There's plenty of, you know, we can talk about this in Europeans looking down on Central Asians, but there's a very, I think, powerful ideology also still of internationalism. And I think it's made more powerful by the Cold War and by the engagement of Soviet politics with decolonization um, that allows local actors, whether they're you know, intellectuals and engineers or you know, peasants who are being affected by this project, to make claims against the system and actually make these projects work for them. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's something that, that is a difference and it's an important one. I think also too, um, and and many many who write about say the Soviet periphery from 1917 on, and looking at Central Asia and the construction of say a national identity and infrastructure and development in those regions, one of the things that that is noted repeatedly, and your book is very much about that, and that is that it's the locals who are actually really involved in this process as well. I mean, your, your class of, of the intelligentsia are Tajik, right? Uh, they, they are have playing an integral role uh, in that development, whereas in the West, I mean, maybe you can comment on this, in the West, it's not necessarily the case in terms of developing the 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 personnel for to create these projects and this general thrust of modernization well actually i think in both cases there there is an effort to um to promote uh local people and and uh, to engage them in projects and i think you'd have to look at it you know in the western case uh, you'd have to go case by case to see how much voice uh they have but actually part of you know western modernization projects just with, with the soviets you know, it also often involved setting up, you know, local universities and economics institutes uh, where locals would do the research and gradually supplant uh, foreign uh, expertise. And so whatever project took shape was always a negotiation between uh, these different groups. And I think in some ways the historiography is still catching up with that. I mean, if you look at some of the early historiography on U.S. 
um, modernization and, and uh, development history, you know, the, it's, I think in some cases it's maybe the historians that are leaving out those local actors rather than those local actors not being there. Um, but, but I think more recently that, that there's been much more acknowledgement of that. Um, but of course, again, in the Soviet case, we have this, you know, the ideology of the affirmative action empire, uh, which we know plays less of a role in the 30s and 40s because of various other things. But it becomes important again in the 1950s. And it's combined with, you know, Khrushchev's kind of um, opening up the space for uh, social scientists and uh, others to play a role in policy, not just in, in Central Asia, but actually throughout the Soviet Union as a whole, and so then you see this very, then you see this very rapid expansion of you know uh, planning uh, organs and uh, academic institutes and economics departments, and then eventually sociology uh, and other fields that are drawn into you know what I would call uh, you know development debates, um, and and of course there's always an emphasis on bringing those locals in. And what also gives us an added impetus again is that there's a desire to show to the post-colonial world that in the Soviet Union it's these groups or it's it's these people who are making the decisions, uh, or you know, as not just the Europeans, right? And and these people are later kind of sent abroad a lot to to talk about their experience, to talk about their successes, and so forth. Um. So before we get into those many specific issues. I'd like to have you paint a picture of um, some of the characteristics of Tajikistan during the period of your study. Right. So Tajikistan is, you know, when the Russian Empire uh, conquers the area, it is more or less um, kind of part of the domain of the Emir of Bukhara. And, and uh, kind of Russian authorities will refer to it as, as Eastern Bukhara. Most of the territory, let's say, that's today, Tajikistan will be referred to as Eastern Bukhara. Uh, it's very mountainous, right? So uh, Tajik officials, will, or Tajikistani, official, Tajikistani officials will often say it's 93% mountains. It's one of the arguments they use for industrialization, right? We can't keep pursuing agriculture because it's 93% mountains. Uh, mountains. Um, it has these powerful rivers, um, that uh, serve as a, a potential source of hydropower. Um, and, but it is, it is also a place where um, uh, many people make a living or made a living in, in the mountains uh, basically through some kind of terraced farming and then, a common, and, and then some kind of herding, right, which involved usually moving further uh, up into the mountains uh, in the summer months for pasture and then, and then coming back down. Um, and what once kind of in the first five-year plan, you have this uh, move towards uh, kind of assigning uh, or trying to produce as much cotton as possible in Central Asia. Um, what they try to do in Tajikistan is also try to irrigate the valleys um, or bring new irrigation to the valleys and also um, expand cotton production uh, there. Um, and uh, there's a historian, Christian Teichmann, who's written very well about this and, and, and the kind of disastrous uh, uh, you know, results of those efforts in, in, in the late 1930s. Um, but so we get, to, we, get to the, uh, we get to the kind of mid-1950s, and the picture is that this is still a very agricultural uh, place. There hasn't really been very much uh, industrial production. It's also, 
you know, if somewhere like Uzbekistan has at least because of the war effort uh, and uh, because of kind of greater investment is becoming more economically integrated with the rest of the Soviet Union, uh, even more culturally and politically integrated, maybe Tajikistan is still a little bit um, uh, less so, or I would say significantly less so. Um, but then, um, of course, uh, the, these opportunities that are being created by, uh, you know, by, by Khrushchev partially and, and, and by the changing political situation um, also make it possible for uh, the local cadres that are there to raise their voice and say, okay, there's a different vision, right, of, of uh, you know, our, our future that, that we want to have, not just kind of con production, um, but, but a kind of different uh, vision that we'd like to pursue within the Soviet Union. You, you mentioned before that uh, the, this development in the periphery in Central Asia and, and for your story, Tajikistan in particular, was also part and parcel to the general Soviet engagement, increased Soviet engagement with the Third World and, of course, the context of the Cold War. So what, what role did, um, how did Soviet development of Central Asia fit within this larger Cold War context? Well, yeah, so this is another thing that, you know, I, I kind of thought I was done with the Cold War, actually, and I thought I wasn't going to be uh, researching it. And then, it, you know, you show up and then it starts, it starts popping up everywhere. Um, uh, and, and one of the ways was, was uh, you know, people would talk very much about, you know, when we, you know, the, the people knew this kind of story that Nurek was built uh, in part because um, the Soviet Union wanted to send electricity to Afghanistan. Uh, and to show uh, that basically they could, you know, they were better than the Americans, right? So it was not just, you know, showing off how developed Central Asia was, but that even that kind of electricity, right, this, this great symbol of development would travel from uh, Central Asia to Afghanistan and, and, and kind of uh, light up the post-colonial world of fuel, right? So um, I, I think two things happen. One is uh, that uh, as you know, as Moscow is trying to work with places like Afghanistan and India and, and Indonesia, um, they become much more aware of, of how important uh, Central Asia can be for that kind of outreach. Um, and, uh, and, and they think about, you know, what we would call today public diplomacy, right? So basically, you know, bringing people to Central Asia and kind of mobilizing Central Asians to take part in that uh, diplomacy by going abroad. Um, but then again, that also creates the space for the Central Asian intellectuals to kind of um, say, okay, well, uh, you want to show us off, um, but we think that things need to look a little bit differently, right? And partially that's because, and, and partially that's also because, uh, you know, Khrushchev very openly says, uh, we need Central Asians to help us interpret the East, Right, so you have these several kind of political moves that are associated with that and not exclusively connected to, to this issue, but, but definitely associated with that. One is that um, the first secretary of Tajikistan, Babajan Gafura, was brought to Moscow in 1956, um, and he heads up the uh, Institute of Oriental Studies, um, and he's also kind of still in the Central Committee. And, you know, you could see that maybe as a demotion in the sense that he goes from a senior political post to, to heading up an institute, but actually he is very kind of explicitly given the task of interpreting and helping direct Soviet policy towards, uh, you know, what becomes, the, what becomes known as the third world. Um, 
on the one hand, then you have um, Nuridi Uhidinov, who's who's a uh, Uzbek party, Uzbekistani party official. He's brought in uh, to Moscow, and he actually becomes the first Central Asian on the Presidium. Um, and again, he's also kind of this is given. This is one of his kind of briefs uh, from Khrushchev, right? Is is uh, reaching out to the to the post-colonial uh, world and helping establish links. Um, and there are others who play, you know, uh, lesser roles than this, but, but many people, uh, and, and, you know, probably hundreds if not thousands by the end of the Soviet era are, are drawn into this in one way or another. Um, and they are also the ones who, you know, end up writing memos or lobbying uh, the Soviet leadership directly or just taking local initiatives to, to change things around. Actually, if I remember correctly from your first book, uh, you noted a similar thing in which um, Tajiks, uh, Uzbeks were on the, were important to facilitate the, the Soviet intervention and invasion of Afghanistan as well, right? They played this kind of vanguard role, right? The, the, that the, the state is, is using them as the face to engage with these similar peoples. Well, I don't, I don't know if they would say they're, they're playing a vanguard role, but, but definitely during well, the war. Well, yeah, yeah lack of a better term. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's true, actually, that the, the first troops are being sent from, uh, from Central Asia, uh, although they're not all, all Central Asians, but more broadly during the war, and I, I did end up interviewing quite a lot of veterans. Um, uh, during the war, they rely on them actually as, well, first of all, as translators and interpreters, um, but they also... You know, they also will have people who are kind of regular soldiers in units who are not meant to be interpreters, but they rely on them to interpret in kind of everyday situations, either with, um, you know, Afghan, Afghan troops or with the local population, but also people in Soviet intelligence, uh, people among economic advisors in Afghanistan and so forth. There's quite a few people from the region. And it's kind of impossible to imagine the Soviet effort there without, uh, without the central agents. Yeah, so t talk about this the development. I mean, you know, the big thing in your story and, and really one of the things you initially wanted to investigate, and that is development of this Tajik intelligentsia. And by intelligentsia, of course, it's a very broad category, you know, from the, the high culture to the, the more technical side. Uh, talk about the development of this this class in Tajikistan and the um, how they understood their role, the issue of development and what role they generally played. So maybe I should explain briefly how I ended up studying them, because again, it was kind of serendipitous. Right? This is the kind of things that you know you never want to tell grad students in a first year seminar that you know research is ninety percent serendipity, but uh, it, it often is. Um, you know, and I, so I was looking through materials in Moscow and trying to kind of get a sense of how decisions on investments were taken, right, and which projects to support, which projects not to support, and I start seeing these you know, report or these, let's say, requests from uh, the political leadership in Tajikistan, which is citing, citing works by Tajik economists, right? So I hadn't actually been thinking of taking these people seriously. Um, I mean, I, I didn't even kind of think about them, right? So, uh, you know, I didn't think that there was kind of local economic school, for example, and, and so forth. But, you know, then I did, and I went and ended up kind of reading uh, their main journals for the entire Soviet period and looking at what else they've written and doing a lot of oral history. And then I realized to understand them, of course, I had to place them into a larger context, right? So what is this group of, you know, specialists, you know, intelligentsia, etc., that's, that's uh, coming out in this period? What is it that, uh, what is kind of their commitment? What do they think they're doing? What, how do they see themselves in this larger Soviet system? And then kind of, 
um, uh, almost kind of starting then from scratch uh, and going back and, and looking at them as kind of several generations and comparing them to their counterparts in, in the Soviet Union and also uh, abroad, right? Because we can see a kind of similarity between them and colonial, elite, uh, colonial elites elsewhere. I mean, people who are, let's say, in the French Empire and actually do quite well, you know, studying in uh, French universities or joining the French civil service or even kind of being coming involved in French uh, politics uh, or local politics to the extent that that's possible within the empire. Um, but here, of course, I think we have a more kind of wholehearted commitment, at least among some of them, to the project. And so, so that's kind of the broader, the broader comparison. The other thing, of course, and, and this is more specific to the Soviet era, is that we actually have several waves of trying to create an intelligence, right? So um, we have, on the one hand, this intelligentsia of the 1920s, which Adib Khalid and others have written about, um, uh, which are people who, you know, had already kind of been educated, usually been active even before the revolution happens, and they kind of, they, for the most part, they're kind of accommodating themselves to Soviet power because they think or hope that their own kind of goals for cultural renewal, social renewal, whatever, can be accomplished within a Soviet system and that there will be enough room for them to do that. But, you know, as everywhere else, that old intelligentsia is sidelined or wiped out by the time we get into the early 1930s and the political leadership a little bit after that. Then from the late 40s, you have slowly under Stalin and then very quickly uh, after Stalin's death, the expansion of educational institutions, right? So recognition that, you know, to fulfill this uh, kind of promise of the affirmative action uh, state or, or, or indigenization, as, as the Soviets would call it, uh, you need to have local cadres, not just kind of people coming from Europe. And so you have this rapid expansion of universities and teaching colleges and uh, technical institutes. And I talk about the specific ones in Tajikistan. But those, so those young people who are entering those, those institutions in the 50s, they're still being taught by survivors of an earlier era, though. Right, so there's also these, the, and, and people who, uh, it seems, and, and of course this is stuff that I get from memoirs and from, from oral histories, um, people who kind of very consciously adopt this idea that uh, they have a duty to create a Tajik nation, uh, to kind of give it you know, opportunities to see it kind of move forward into, into the future, who seem to be actually quite loyal to the idea of, but not unconditionally so, um, of the Soviet project. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, are really uh, humanists, uh, kind of well-rounded humanists in the sense that, you know, if they're educating, uh, and, and this is sort of consistent with what we have uh, elsewhere in the Soviet Union, but with, with certain local characteristics, you know, if they're, uh, you know, the Polytechnic Institute in Dushanbe apparently became this great center for, you know, literary evenings um, because, the, you know, partially because it was run by somebody who was, you know, first studied physics, but then also had a degree in philosophy, you know, and was also a Second World War veteran and decorated and uh, could kind of apparently get what he wanted uh, when it came to, you know, negotiating things with authorities and so forth. Um, so, so what you have is a shared culture, I think, among students of that generation in uh, Dushanbe and elsewhere, particularly in Dushanbe. Um, and, but I think you would find something similar in, in Tashkent. Uh, 
where they see themselves as kind of being trained for this nation building project, whether they're going into the humanities or they're going into engineering or dam building or you know, infrastructure work. Um, and it was interesting in the oral histories, you know, seeing how one, they all kind of knew each other or knew of each other, um, but also how they talked in very similar terms, right? So, so, you know, an engineer would suddenly start talking about the importance of theater, right? And, and, um, and you know, somebody who was, uh, you know, from more of a literary field would, would talk about the importance of dance and so forth. So they were very much coming up together as part of this project. But as I said, this was also a kind of conditional commitment uh, to the Soviet project, meaning that um, their teachers were uh, often uh, quite outspoken, especially well in the 1950s, perhaps less so under Stalin, but certainly 1950s and later, if they felt that the kind of um, you know this idea of national culture was not being respected. Uh, and and uh, it's something that the students took on uh, as well. Right, that they were not just Soviet subjects, that they were really uh, Tajik uh, Soviet subjects. So, in what ways did this, with the, the, the role of these um, specialists in the development of Tajikistan, and, and what kinds of projects did they engage in, and, and how did Tajik society change uh, in the 1960s and 70s. And in particular, I want to reference something that you started out with, with the, the fact that geography of Tajikistan is mostly mountainous. So in, in their thinking, their attempts to change Tajik uh, infrastructure and society, how did the environment pose a, a, an issue for them or a problem in which they had to negotiate? Yeah, I'm sorry yeah absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, well, there are big questions in there. To be honest, I mean, there's questions I'm still wrestling with, uh, having uh, having finished the book. Right, um, I I have to lead a, a reading group today of, of PhD students um, looking at Timothy Mitchell's Rule of Experts, which was big kind of um, you know it's big influence on me when I just started this project. And I'm rereading the book, and I'm you know and I'm going back to these questions and you know some of the stuff I think wow that I really kind of think this all the way through and you know how would I do it differently if I was starting again now but but what I what I do kind of point out um, in, or what I found actually researching this book is um, these scholars have to revise their presumptions um, several times um, or over the course of you know 30 30 plus years between when they become active in the 50s until until the Soviet collapse and the most obvious area is what, you know, this expectation that, you know, the peasantry is going to flock into industries, right? They're quite sure of this in the 1950s. They're drawing on actually, uh, you know, something that was uh, quite widely accepted in the Soviet Union, right? Despite a lot of forgetting about how it was the peasants were moved into industry in, in, in the 1930s, right? Right. I mean, there's a lot of forgetting that has to happen to, to kind of accept these industries, but it's also actually, you know, it's, it's a foundation of a lot of development economics in the 1950s uh, in the West as well. And then that doesn't seem to happen. And that leads them to kind of question why. Right. So what is it that's going on that is uh, keeping people from moving industry? And that leads them to have to, I mean, they have to kind of change their tools. They have to, you know, uh, find a new epistemology and they get involved in, kind of sociology, they, they call for kind of more ethnographic study. Um, they're in, in some ways, I think, you know, more forward looking maybe than, than Western economists 
uh, are because that they do try to think of these things holistically. Like how do we bring these kind of approaches together? Um, and anyway, we can talk about that uh, some more later. So there are there are a number of revisions that happen on those grounds. Uh, but then there's also the, the kind of physical environment as well. So one is um, uh, one is the the kind of effect of the cotton economy in particular on uh, the natural environment and then the natural environments uh, or, or the pollution of the natural environment and, and its effect on uh, on people, right? And so everybody who, who kind of studies dams kind of at this point knows the story that but that you dam up a river, the kind of natural uh, system of of um, of nourishing the soil that happens when these these rivers um, uh, these rivers kind of flood uh, areas or uh, kind of disappears because now you're, you're you're kind of sending this clean water downstream and then you have to use more and more fertilizer and, and all sorts of chemicals to keep things growing especially if you want to grow cotton more or less year round um, and uh, there there is definitely quite a lot of awareness about this actually going back to the 1960s and so partially I think what um, what people are trying to do by arguing for industrialization is hoping to get away from this reliance on cotton because they realize how damaging it can be. Long before these become very public conversations in the 70s and especially the 1980s, there's already a realization that you know we're going to have to um, we're going to have to pull back on, on, on uh, cotton. And then there's also the question of water, which I think is quite interesting and has uh, or water use in particular because it has several implications, um, not just for Kind of how you think about the environment, but how they, they end up thinking about um, planning and, and uh, pricing and, and uh, let's say economics more generally, um, which is, you know, the, the whole kind of dam uh, and irrigation system is premised on the idea that you can control the flow of water down to the farm level, right? And so you can make sure that you're not wasting it, that you're actually using as much as uh, you need and not more and so forth. What happens in reality is, of course, there's pressure to meet targets or there's a desire to earn the prizes that come with meeting targets, whatever it is. And once you get to the farm level, uh, water is, is actually being completely misused or, or it's being used in much greater quantities than, than the engineers expected to. And when they go and try to find out why, it turns out that their maps are useless, right? They have these maps of the canals they dug and then it turns out that you know, brigade leaders or farm managers have done new, uh, you know, this is um, perhaps not surprising now for people who study this kind of thing, um, but it was a shock to these officials at the time. Um, and so, you know, there's a stereotype, which I think scholars have successfully debunked at this point that the Soviet Union didn't care about uh, environment, the environment, right? And that's, that's not really true. What you see is very early on, there's a concern, and it's not just Tajiks, it's Russians, it's people in the center, it's people locally, who are very worried about uh, the misuse of water, or the abuse, uh, the overuse of water, right? And, and it's pollution. But there's also quite a lot of faith in the idea that engineering and planning can help you control how much you use and prevent that waste. And what happens over the course of time is that that planning and all the, the you know, the drawing these maps and trying to monitor it just does not do the job, right? That, that basically there's a, uh, there's activity there that's unknowable to these organizations. And that leads to questions of kind of proper pricing, right? So suddenly you're looking to the price, not suddenly, this happens gradually, but you start looking to the price mechanism 
rather than uh, the strict planning mechanism to uh, actually regulate the use of water. Uh, and this is not a, you know, this is not a kind of uh, free price system, right? This is not this kind of, uh, the idea we would have today where you'd have a, you know, a board that kind of the price goes up as the board is being used and goes down. But there's a, but the price incentive is nevertheless kind of recognized as, as an important possible solution. And it, it, it's never really, that idea never really, is never really followed through. Uh, I think in part, because at least in the Central Asian case, the pressure to produce cotton is such that, that you know, there's always a desire to keep to keep the water flowing uh, as long as possible and not create any extra problems. But at least it creates this 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 very interesting discussion. Now, Soviet uh, modernization um, wasn't just about transforming, say, the infrastructure and the economic foundations of a place like Tajikistan. Um, it, it was also the, the larger project was about creating new people. Um, and, and one of the things you said earlier that was really interesting is that for, for these intellectuals, for them, part of the project was also nation building. So uh, talk about this, this effort to create these essentially new Soviet people or Soviet subjects through this development push. Right. So we have, on the one hand, right, this, this, this creation of the new intelligentsia, technical intelligentsia, the cultural intelligentsia to fulfill the Soviet um, you know, nation-building project. You had Ron Suni on uh, a little while ago, I think about a month ago, he was talking about this uh, in a broader sense. And, you know, in a sense, you know, what I was doing here is this kind of filling in some details of, of what uh, he and uh, other historians of, of, of like Terry Martin and so forth have said about this. And then there, but there's the other part, of course, which is where, you know, the people who aren't uh, the intelligentsia, right? And, and these people who, actually by the 60s, the social scientists are very much concerned that they're not reaching, right? That these people are not participating in Soviet modernity uh, in any really meaningful way. Uh, and so we know from, you know, these, these studies of, uh, you know, by Helbeck and others, and, and of course, uh, Stephen Kotkin before that, uh, doing it in, in a different way, uh, how important... Uh, this kind of fashioning and self-fashioning is in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. Um, and what I found was that it was still very powerful in the 50s and 60s, uh, certainly in this area. And this was most noticeable, not exclusively, but most noticeable around this big building project. Right, so in part, uh, because they, they end up uh, reliant on local neighbor, but also in part because the ideology says that they need to involve uh, locals and, and uh, not just as kind of, uh, you know, not just kind of as manual labor, but actually all the way through through the ranks and up to management. Um, you know, there's the local party organization gets very involved in drawing people from the villages around this dam uh, into the workforce and into technical training and so forth. And this is not just a technical project. So what they... What they're doing, I think, is they're offering a way to, they're offering people a way to think about themselves, right? As, okay, you know, you were a peasant, but look, now you can operate this really challenging machine, right? Or more than that, you can help maintain the machine, or you can, uh, you can uh, help design part of this dam project. You know, you can oversee it, you can command other workers, you can serve as an example to other workers. Um, 
so, so people start thinking of their own kind of life stories, encouraging people to think of their own life stories as part of this larger building of the dam, larger building of Tajikistan, building of the Soviet Union. Um, and some people respond to this more readily. I mean, veterans of the Second World War who happen to be in the area, uh, I think, are in some cases some of the first to join up. Um, others take more of a push. And, and so there's a lot of local accommodation or local kind of let's say improvisation that's required to figure out how to do that. Um, and, uh, but, the, but the best way that they find is actually to work through kind of local extended family structures, right? Where you, uh, you know, if you have a worker who has joined the dam and is doing well, you encourage them to kind of tell their story in the, in the local newspaper, but actually also to go back to their villages and talk about it uh, and get other people to join up in that way. Right. So, and that's, you know, I, I don't think that's something that you would have found in a party handbook, right? I've never seen that written down as a strategy. Uh, that's something I only learned from, from kind of oral history, right? That this is how they had to uh, recruit, recruit around, uh, around the work site. Um, so that's, that's a very big part of it. And the problem for me methodologically was, okay, I'm getting it from obviously Soviet publications and I'm getting it sometimes through archives, but, and I'm getting it through oral history. Uh, I don't have the sources that, you know, some uh, Helbeck had, for example, looking at diaries from the time period, right? Unfortunately. Um, but to me, I mean, the fact that this is still how people told stories, you know, 30 years now, 20, 20 plus years after the Soviet collapse was itself uh, kind of a very powerful, uh, very powerful signal. Um, and I remember actually my first kind of day that I was doing proper oral history in Iraq and I had a contact there who um, uh, was still also a member of the Communist Party, but also a businessman, uh, which in itself was quite telling. Um, and he met me and we spent, we spent three or four hours together. He was showing me around, he was introducing me to people, and he was telling me this, his life story along the way. And he was telling me his life story, and he drives me as we're going up to the top of the dam. And what do we have at the top of the dam? He placed the giant uh, Bilaz dump truck that he worked on at the top on a pedestal. Right. So for him, you know, there was this complete identification and, and he was, I mean, he was one of the kind of most successful uh, of these builders in the sense that he started, I think, as a personal driver, then worked his way up to uh, a truck driver, which you had to kind of get some serious training for and then uh, engineer and manager and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, so he really identified the kind of growth of his dam with his own history, with his own growth. and was really very proud of it. And, and, you know, it was very suspicious that I was somebody who showed up to, to talk about how awful it all was. Um, and, and I, I, right. And I found different versions of this, um, kind of over my, my time there. Yeah. You know, at, at one point you write, and I found this really interesting and quite provocative. Um, you write that in the late 1960s and 1970s, the distance between present day reality and the promise of socialism shrunk considerably. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, if, if you look at what the Soviet Union promises and what people's experience of daily life is in the 1930s, especially uh, in uh, most of Central Asia, right, the gap is so enormous that you almost wonder how anybody could believe that it would ever come true. Right? And obviously I'm saying that with, you know, the condescension of, of of posterity, uh, because I know if you were a part of it, you might have you might have seen things differently. But um, 
when we get to when we get to the 60s and 70s, what you see is um, you know these promises that Khrushchev makes and, and gets made fun of about you know you're going to have this much meat and and uh, you know this much cheese and this much butter and a roof over your head and this and this. None of them are met exactly, but it becomes much more normal to expect that you're going to get some version of that. And if you don't, you can complain, and there's a good chance that your complaint will be heard. Right? I mean, the housing program throughout the Soviet Union is one example of this. Right? This idea that you, know, you shouldn't suffer under socialism in horrible living conditions. You should have your own apartment. And maybe it's not the most luxurious apartment, but you and your family will have you know, a few rooms and a functioning you know, toilet and electricity and all these things. Um, and the reach of that becomes much greater. That's, I think, the important thing, that if you look around even the more, more remote part of, of, of uh, Tajikistan, I mean, there's still places without electricity, uh, you know, heading into the 1980s, but there's fewer and fewer of them. Uh, and it becomes uh, much more normal uh, to, uh, for example, expect that if you're expanding your house, you might build it, you know, with the traditional methods of mud brick, but you could also then use some materials, um, you know, uh, some modern materials that are provided by Soviet authorities formally or informally to add on to that. You would expect that you can link up with an electricity grid, that you could go to school, that you could go to university, um, that your children, if you know, if you wanted to go in the direction, would have that kind of upward mobility, um, and that you had stability, right? That, that there was no more fear of hunger, certainly, right? There was no more, um, you know, there wasn't really fear of, of ending up without a roof over your head, and particularly crucial in, in the context of, you know, mountainous republic like Tajikistan, that if there was a natural disaster, uh, the state would step, step in uh, and help out. Um, and that if you were sick, there was a clinic that you could go to, right? And, and all of these things. And, and um, so it, that, that's basically what I meant by that. But the other thing is the way that people talk about it. And, and um, uh, I noticed this, for example, in, in some of the reporting that's done at the time about the Nurek Dam, that you have journalists, both Tajiks and Russians, who show up, and you know if they see that uh, you know uh, conditions for some of the peasants who, are, who have been displaced by this dam are not good, like if they haven't gotten the new village, new model village, or the new house that they were promised. Um, you know, they, they say this in fairly strong words, right, in very evocative and, and, and strong language, saying, no, they should have this now, right? This isn't suffering now for communism later, right? Socialism begins right now. Um, and I, so I think that's kind of important. And I think that's also very important for understanding post-Soviet nostalgia, um, probably throughout the Soviet Union, but maybe especially there, that people are not looking back, you know, uh, even if they're talking about Stalin, I don't think they're necessarily thinking back to Stalin, they're thinking back to this period, uh, the, the 60s and 1970s. So, so what was the, the Tajik experience during the collapse of the Soviet system then? And how does that factor into this nostalgia as well? Well, that's a, that's a broad question. Um, I mean, Tajikistan uh, sees some unrest in the final years of the Soviet Union. It's connected to the things you see everywhere else. Um, which is, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, the rise of, of kind of more overt nationalism, uh, which, which is coming mostly from actually the secularized intelligentsia. And I argue in the book that that's partially connected. It's, it's very much connected to the fact that they take their mission very seriously, 
right? This idea of being responsible to the Tajik nation, creating the Tajik nation, but also because of their experiences abroad. Right? A lot of these people were um, had been sent as development advisors, as translators, whatever, and 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 you know to to spread the message of Soviet anti-colonialism. And then you know in the late 1980s, they turn it around and say actually. You know, the Soviet Union is not a great model for, for anti-colonialism. It is a colonial power. Some of them say that. A lot of them actually don't. Um, so you have that, which is the room for that comes from Glasnost partially. It also comes from the fact that this elite is, by the late Soviet period, very well integrated into, into pan-Soviet networks, right? So they know, what the, you know what's going on in the Baltics. They know... Uh, what's going on in their own republics, they know, I mean, in their own kind of region. Uh, they know what's going on in the Caucasus, and, and they meet up at, uh, you know, conferences and meetings in Moscow, and they hear about different movements that are happening elsewhere, and they, they, they you know, think about doing the same things at home. But then you also have uh, Gorbachev's economic uh, liberalization, um, and uh, Isaac Scarborough recently defended a dissertation at the LSE on this. Um, it creates... Uh, some, you know, interesting unintended consequences in terms of uh, creating room for people working in the, in the, you know, not necessarily for creating the kind of uh, socialist entrepreneurs that maybe were envisioned, but really actually creating room for people who are uh, more in the gray economy and, and quite happy to use force to support their economic endeavors, shall we say, um, and, and the rise of kind of gangsterism. And on top of that, there's also an increasing, in part because of glassness and in part because of these uh, environmental problems and, and uh, because a lot of the promises of socialism have not been reached, there's a lot of, um, you know, dissatisfaction that's increasingly being voiced about Tajikistan's uh, development or, let's say, conditions relative to the region and to the Soviet Union, but also within the Republic, different regions feeling that they've you know, they've, built, they've been dealt a, a bad hand relative to, to the other regions in the Republic. Um, and I mean, to cut a long story short, what happens uh, partially as a result of that when the Soviet Union collapses is civil war. Uh, because the, the, the kind of elites from these different regions, um, I mean, there's also, you know, there's an Islamic party that emerges, Democratic party, and then there's these ideological divisions, but there's also regional divisions which are partially uh, a result of, of that satisfaction and earlier resettlement campaigns and so forth. Um, and so the country goes into civil war, uh, which lasts uh, until 1997, some violence after that as well. Um, and that, of course, you know, I say in the book, I, as you would expect, that also colors people's interpretation of the Soviet era, right? Because um, it's hard to say that, you know, the 60s or 70s, you know, no matter how critical of the Soviet Union you are, it's hard to say that the 60s and 70s were worse than the Civil War. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's something else we kind of have to deal with when we're looking back at that, uh, at that period. And finally, what do, what do we learn from the history of, of Soviet development of Tajikistan in relationship to the larger Cold War context of third world development in the post-war period? How do, how do you fit the, the Soviet experience within this larger context? Well, in a way, I mean, it's, it's you know, this, this book left me with the realization that um, we need to do more to think about how Soviet, uh, the Soviet story fits into this larger 
history of development in the 20th century. And that includes um, thinking about how ideas about development circulate from the Soviet Union to the West and back or, or uh, vice versa. Um, uh, but also really thinking about these things in some, in some closer uh, comparison. Um, and, um, you know, thinking about the presumptions, but also thinking about how ideas of development change. I mean, I talk in the book about how, you know, the chronology of how uh, the Soviet Union thinks about development, or let's say the debates about development in the Soviet Union, the chronology of what happens uh, in the West and Western institutions is actually quite similar, right? The kind of optimism of the 1950s and the faith in industrialization to the increasing disappointment of the late 60s. Um, a turn towards uh, some different ideas in the 70s, and then uh, the 80s, kind of a shift, uh, which you can also interestingly see in the Soviet Union, from thinking about uh, kind of development along, or in terms of drawing people into a larger project, increasingly in terms of giving them the opportunities to do things on their own, right? So what becomes in the West, the promotion of entrepreneurialism, although the Soviets aren't using those words quite yet. Um, and I think we need to, I, I don't have a satisfactory answer yet, it's something I hope to keep working on, but we need to ask uh, more questions about why that is. So is it, is it similar presumptions about industrializations and, and, and about the way that societies work that's at the heart of, of these two different systems? Or is it uh, the entanglements of the Soviet Union and Western development uh, apparatuses uh, that brings this on? Um, and one of the things I've been doing since the book, since I finished the book, is actually looking at Soviet involvement um, in uh, UN development uh, debates and other international fora to try to tease that out a little bit. I'm still still very early in the, in that project. Um, so that's uh, that's I guess one thing. The other is um, that um, you know I'm hoping that. Uh, we can write development history in a way that bridges this, this division between, let's say, political and intellectual and international history and the more um, kind of anthropological approaches uh, that have been uh, pioneered, not just by anthropologists, but others who've taken a look at kind of the everyday reality of, of what development is. Um, and it's not just because, uh, you know, I think it's important to see how people, you know, actually live through these big initiatives. Um, but, uh, but because I think that the development ideas themselves are not, this intellectual history is not just being formed by intellectuals alone. All right. And, and I think the benefit of looking at things in this local way is that you see that they respond very much to conditions on the ground, uh, and they reflect on them and they force them to ask different questions and develop new epistemologies. And over time that le leads to a shift, often a very unexpected one in the very development kind of paradigms with which they approach these questions. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, we can kind of uh, move in this direction uh, and kind of develop the historiography more broadly. That was Artemy Kalinowski, a senior lecturer in East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam, where he specializes in the history of modern Russia, Central Asia, and the Cold War. He's the author of A Long Goodbye, the Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, published by Harvard University Press in 2011. His new book is The Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. 
The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Attack Russia, I'm still pissed about Rodney King Destroy Malaysia, had enough of your deceptions Kick Canada out the union, they've been unpatriotic France, Britain, Germany Shut up Everybody knows indigenous people are the real terrorists Sexism's coming back and everybody's a victim Marxism is on the rise Sixteen-year-old kids with t-shirts featuring Joseph Stalin Racial prejudice is as strong as it ever was I'm so proud to be American Can't wait till Arnold declares the police that if he don't I will My people bet you up and for they own good Disrespecting Capitol Hill George Bush ain't no Caesar But neither was Lawrence Ferlinghetti The Patriot Act wasn't so bad I feel safer already This is no time to be soft hands the end of the world draws near Most liberals would have you feeding Indians And kissing up to those people that we've been killing over the years It's always the minority that reads too much And wants it all to stop But the other 99% car press people Here's an easy quote of the cat in the hat Thought it was fat with our crap Never got to make its combat Rappers a gap that In the ghost of Sugar Hill Seem to support that Journalism decrease Turn to state news agencies And the publicist's best way with the school to be a writer Advertising rates are going up Subscriptions are doubling All we had to do was put Jessica Simpson With tattoos in a Che Guevara T-shirt undercover Receptacles as dumb down as it's supposed to be The choir gets smarter Then the preacher goes to jail The choir turns to wait Slaves preacher shows